0: You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now, for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts.
1: Hi, this is Caitlin Martin.
2: This is Patrick Martin.
0: This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Welcome to a special edition of The Beltway Briefing. I'm Mark Alderman. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Patrick Martin in Chicago, Ashley Allen in Richmond, and Jamie Ansorge in New York. We are going to talk today about a topic that is happening far more outside the beltway than inside, although it's certainly on the agenda in Washington as well, and that is legalization of cannabis. There's been a lot of activity in the states, especially the states where Ashley and Jamie are uh, sitting this fine afternoon. And we're going to walk through what all of that uh, means. So let's start with Patrick. If you can give us uh, an overview, level set the field for us, Patrick, and, and then we'll sort out the states. Thanks, Mark. And it's
2: great to be talking with you about this issue that I feel like you and I spend a lot of our time together throughout the week talking about.
0: Well, we've talked about it for an hour already today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: well, us, so. and it, it's it's a good opportunity to just recognize how lucky we are and fortunate we are to be at a law firm and a lobbying group that is so in the middle of the action when it comes to this issue. Uh, we're obviously fortunate to work with a number of great clients uh, in Washington and throughout uh, the country. Uh, but we just have tremendous support from our firm and have really been sort of a pioneer in getting into this space early and working with companies to help develop a marketplace that's inclusive, equitable, and good for the states in which these companies operate. So it's exciting it's, to get to be taught.
0: It's very exciting. And and just to interrupt for a quick minute, uh, Ashley and Jamie are living what I'm about to say. You and I have been lucky enough to Patrick, it's very rare that you get to be in the mix at the birth of a major American industry. This is a big deal as a business. It's a big social matter. It's a big political matter. And here, here we are as it is being built. So sorry to interrupt, but, but no. I just wanted to share my enthusiasm for what we're doing. Couldn't have said
2: it better. And everywhere, uh, Mark, I feel like you and I go, people want to talk to us about this issue. It's very exciting and interesting to policymakers, to people across the country, uh, many of whom have been supportive of cannabis legalization far longer than I even knew sort of what the issue was. So what we're experiencing right now is just this incredible social movement. We're watching states across the country uh, vote to create medical cannabis programs, vote to legalize adult-use cannabis, and it's going faster across the country than uh, almost any issue I've seen in a really long time. Uh, What is really interesting is how popular this is politically. And when this issue, when legalization is on the ballot, whether it's a state ballot initiative or you know, working its way through the legislature, hanging over the whole issue is just the public support, which whether it's in blue states or red states, we see it in every poll, we see it at the ballot box on election day, uh, that seems to be driving so much of this movement forward. Um, but what we're seeing is states taking action and the federal policymakers in Washington see that happening back home, but they haven't quite caught up yet. You have some real leaders in Congress who are working to try to change that and and to have Congress and the administration address cannabis reform in a real meaningful way. We we have to commend the House Democratic leadership for what they did last year in the historic vote on the Moore Act, first time ever a body of Congress voted to legalize uh, cannabis. And the leadership that uh, Leader Schumer, uh, Chairman Wyden and Senator Booker are providing now in in their uh, much uh, awaited discussion draft uh, on what federal legalization will look like in the Senate. All of that is happening uh, right now. But states are continuing to lead the way. Uh, And that's what we're here to talk about today. Two of the states that have been sort of the big hotspots for activity and that the whole country has been watching on this issue are New York and the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we're so fortunate to have uh, two colleagues on who are just experts in this. So, Ashley, I want to start with you. You know, we've seen legalization happen in you know states in the northeast and my home state of illinois uh, the obviously the political transformation in virginia has just been extraordinary over the last several years you've lived it firsthand you're seeing you know a state that that is sort of defined as the old guard of the south has become rapidly a purple to to maybe even blue state and it, so much has changed so quickly you also have the experience of being, you were at the, at the birth of the medical program. You worked on this from the very beginning. Would love to just get your thoughts on the experience of having seen the medical program get set up and then tell us everything about this process that's taken place on adult use, uh, leading to, to this historic movement in Virginia.
1: Thanks, Patrick, and hello from the South. I honestly can't believe that I am sitting here in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia.
0: The capital about, of the Confederacy, Ashley. Yes. Yeah,
1: the past capital of the Confederacy, talking about how Virginia is set to be the 16th state to legalize marijuana. Like, let me just say, mind blowing, like, full stop.
0: So, um, how, did, how did that happen? Tell us well, how that I would
1: happened. say rapidly. <laughs> Now, if you're an advocate in this space, maybe not rapidly from your point of view, but from a political point of view, very rapidly. So for just a little bit of background, I mean, only let's say six years ago, uh, 2015-16, a group of moms came to the Virginia General Assembly and had children with intractable epilepsy, and they were seeking treatments with medical cannabis from Colorado, specifically uh, oil, and they wanted to legally have that for their children because they were breaking the law to have medicine for their children. It was the only thing that was working. And a group of moms met with every single member of the General Assembly, 140 people, every single one of them, and really paved the way for Virginia's, you know, entrance into marijuana in general. They came here and they brought their children and they almost unanimously, maybe like one or two no votes, were able to get an affirmative defense for possession of cannabis oil, uh, CBD, THCA oil for their children. And from there, it really started to snowball. They put in place a medical cannabis program with only CBD oil um, starting at the Virginia Board of Pharmacy, which is where it now resides. And they continued moving along in that until this year where we actually uh, passed uh, cannabis flower in the medical program this year in Virginia too. So we had a big marijuana year here. But they really spearheaded the movement here in Virginia away from just an absolute no never to where we are today And those moms came forward, brought that program out of nowhere. Um, Our governor, Governor Northam, is a pediatric neurologist by trade. And so he came forward supportive of using this for children and for specifically for these types of issues and diseases. And we moved from there. We are actually one of the only states, Virginia is, that does not require a condition now in order to receive your medical cannabis card. So that's a big thing for us too. And so kind of through that, um, we started to get a little bit more into it, but really it all happened, I would say, last year in 2020 General Assembly, uh, the Virginia General Assembly um, moved to decriminalize marijuana after a shift politically where the Democrats took control of the Senate and the House of Delegates. And so when that happened, we really saw a quick shift in terms of marijuana here in Virginia with decriminalization coming last, um, you know, February, March, and then become, that became effective July 1st of uh, 2020. And then from there, there was a lot of talk of not now legalization, we're not ready yet. We wanna see how decrim works. But quite frankly, the advocates in this arena pushed and just continued to move forward on this. And, you know, They went from, look, decriminalization is great, but we're still seeing, you know, disadvantaged populations being arrested and now not arrested, but receiving these fines and these sorts of things, not being put in jail anymore, but still being negatively impacted by uh, the marijuana laws that we have on the books. And so we went from decrim in 2020 to a study throughout the year done by our joint um, legislative and audit review commission in Virginia JLARC that really put out there what's happening across the states in marijuana and put forward some suggestions of how we should do it. And then from there, um, the governor gave his support of legalization in November of 2020, He put together a task force of folks who came up with the legislation, and really and truly, they pushed this with the most important lens being social equity, and how can we make equitable legalization in Virginia that's going to help those communities that have been impacted the most by drug laws in the Commonwealth. And I'd say that's where we are today after... A, um, a little bit of a whirlwind between um, General Assembly session for us, which, you know, only lasts 46 days in a short year, which was this year. And then veto session, which happened last Wednesday when the General Assembly took their final vote on legalization here in Virginia. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I've, and, and
0: what was that final vote, Ashley? Was it a bipartisan
1: So, vote? interesting topic to bring up. Um, When the legislation was going through, there was some bipartisan support in the Senate. We actually did have a a handful of Senate Republicans, about three or four, depending on the day, that were supporting the legalization legislation that was moving forward. But the final legislation that came out of the governor's amendments included some union-specific language that. all the Republicans pulled their support and ended up not voting for the bill. So the final vote on the bill in both chambers was no Republican support.
2: Interesting. So it wasn't anything on social equity or any that, it, that they were there was common ground on a lot of those issues. But it was sort of the the, the waiver piece that was really.
1: In the Senate, yes. In the yeah. House, we do we do have um, a Republican um, delegate, Nick Friedis, uh, who is more of a libertarian, if you will. Um, he, you know, supports legalization of marijuana, but did not support the way we were doing it because in Virginia we are doing a lot of set asides for licenses for specifically social equity related business and entrepreneurs, and he he you know, a spouse's free market. And so therefore that wasn't something that he was really comfortable And He kind of stated this in a floor speech he made on it. But yep, it was- And actually, the
0: was, was the session virtual? Was this an in-person session or a virtual session?
1: Probably what made this even crazier was that we were 100% virtual in terms of the House of Delegates. They did not meet in person at all this session. The Senate of Virginia, with only 40 members, met in our science museum where they set up an entirely new chamber for them. They each had their own big banquet table and they were all six feet apart. And so they were meeting in person, but nobody else could go there. So we couldn't have any meetings. Lobbyists, you know, couldn't go in have meetings with the with the legislators. It was really primarily done virtually, and especially on the House side, everything was done virtually. So
0: yeah, that's I don't amazing. Know it's so amazing. Is right it it for such an historic step to be taken on a screen without yes. people even shaking hands is is just extraordinary. So, Ashley,
2: for our listeners who don't know, you are, you were worked with one of the original medical license winners in Virginia. You have been intimately involved in this issue and are thought of within the Commonwealth as a thought leader and someone who has studied this and, and, and knows sort of all players and components. What are people talking about now looking ahead? You know, there's in terms of how it's going to be regulated, how the program's going to roll out, what are the big sort of areas of discussion you see as we're looking forward at what implementing uh, this is going to look like?
1: Yeah, so first off, I will you know say my colleague here, Jerry Kilgore, and I are very proud that we actually represent the first medical marijuana dispensary in Virginia they were the first to open their doors here and we're very proud to get to work with them. They're located in far Southwest Virginia and um, we're a group of local folks who came together with a dream and pushed forward a medical license. And so it's a pretty amazing story that they have going. But I think what we're gonna see moving forward is the biggest thing right now is Virginia legalized possession starting July 1st, 2021 but not retail sales. So retail sales for Virginia aren't currently scheduled to come on board until January 1st of 2024. So we have a two and a half year window in there where there's a lot of questions right now for everybody, for people interested in having and possessing marijuana to employers who aren't sure what, you know, we're gonna do in kind of the meantime. Um, And to businesses who are interested in this field who might want to try and get a license, but what does it mean that we have this lag and what does that mean for the timeline of licenses to open up? And so I think what we have right now is a lot of question marks. Basically, Virginia has two legal ways to actually acquire, if you will, marijuana starting July 1st. One, you can home grow. So you can grow up to four plants in your per household, not per person, and it is not prescribed how you would acquire such right. seed or cuttings right. to the home. These
0: are all immaculate births, yes. right? <laughs> right. We've been so, through that in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, so my magic seeds are going to be showing up in my house. For, for, you know, you to grow your uh, your legal marijuana, you have to tag it with specific information. There's actually quite a few things you need to do for your home grow for it to consider, be considered legal. Um, the biggest, I think, question mark around the home grow is twofold. One is um, what does it mean in terms of getting it, but also... Um, Keeping it away from children, you have to use reasonable precaution, and it's unclear what that means. I have a 17-month-old, and I don't know that if, aside from having a, a room that would be my specific room that she that has a keypad to keep her out, I'm not entirely certain I know how you keep little hands out. So I think that's something that we'll be exploring. I know Patrick would really have a challenge at his oh, house. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, but we're exploring that. We'll see more about that. And then the other piece of it is um, we did a possession limit of up to one ounce, but four ounce, but four plants creates a lot more than one ounce of marijuana. And so there's a little bit of a dance that is going to have to happen between that, between those two pieces of this legislation that we're going to see um, come out and probably get flushed out a little bit more as we move forward. But the other way to legally obtain, and this is, I think, you know, what is going to be really fun is to be gifted it. So how I may get it, if I gift it to Mark, Mark has legally obtained it. I have probably not unless another adult gifted it to me interesting. It in my
2: house. It's like a really weird white elephant party, right? It's just you just don't yeah. know yeah, you don't know <laughs> who's getting what and that's that well, is really interesting.
0: And all of course within the boundaries of the Commonwealth of Virginia, it's yeah. a federal crime to carry one of those magic seeds across a state line. So there's really a, a lot of magic as you said uh, a minute ago, Ashley. Yeah. And, and in into this mix, you are about to add an election, right? You've got a gubernatorial election, you've got a legislative election. I guess your house, everybody in the house is up.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, Virginia is one of the special off year election years. And so, we have all of our statewide offices are up this year. So, we will elect our governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general this year in 2021. And we also have all 100 seats of the house up. We have them up this year. We were supposed to redistrict this year because of the census. We haven't had the census results yet in order to redistrict. So they will run this year in their current seats, likely have to run again next year in their new seats. And then because they run every two years again in 2023. So we have a lot of wiggle room between the passage of this bill in 2021 until we're supposed to get retail sales starting in 2024 with three right. elections of the general assembly potentially. So it- I hope
2: they give the legislators access to possession earliest because it sounds like they're going to need it with three elections in a row, <laughs> row each year. That is that is incredible.
0: That is, that is exactly why I asked uh, this this landmark program could turn on the election returns. Right uh, is is it at risk, do you think? What, yeah. what what happens if we end up in Virginia with Republican control in a year or two?
1: So the legalization piece becomes effective July 1st. So that piece, you know, pending a repeal, right, is set. A number of pieces of the legislation require reenactment. So they would have to be passed again in 2022 session in order for it to move forward. And the big piece of that is the regulatory scheme of retail sales. So the licensing piece of this isn't totally set in stone yet, and so that would be set to redo in 2022. And so let's say the House flipped right um, back to Republicans. Maybe you know suburban voters with you know, Trump no longer at the White House, aren't as, you know, gung-ho uh, to, co- to go vote this year. Um, if we did see a flip of the legislature, that would have a big effect there. Um, I don't think you're going to see a repeal because our Senate is not up for reelection this year. So the Senate is still Democrat-controlled 21-19, um, just razor-thin mm-hmm. margin there. So I do think you could see some changes happening to the idea of what retail sales would look like if we had a shift in terms of the legislature. The statewide elections, you know, as I think Patrick said earlier, Virginia on a statewide level is really trending more Democrat. Um, we're, We're like a lot of other states where our rural areas are solid, solid red. I mean, just solid red and our urban and into suburban areas are solidly blue. And so at the statewide level, you know, I think there's good. We'll see what happens with the Republicans um, and who they pick. We'll see what happens with the Democrats and who they pick. But I think, you know, right now it really is probably Democrats to lose, if you would, at the statewide level. um, Well, at the
0: gubernatorial level, it's back to the future, right? Yeah, we could have. Expectation, uh, deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra said. Yes,
1: and and McAuliffe McAuliffe has been very outspoken in his support for moving this industry forward, and also in his support for making, you know, moving the medical marijuana industry forward too. And that's not a position we hear from everybody in Virginia. And so his focus on that being, you know, protected as well has been um, something that, you know, everybody's been looking at and listening to while we while we kind of go through this.
0: Well, that's a great segue, speaking of governors, to the great state of New York, where Jamie and our colleagues have followed the twists and turns. of <laughs> Will
2: they, won't they? Will they, won't they? Will they, won't they? <laughs>
0: So I don't even know what question to ask, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Jamie. Just, well, just start talking about New York and <laughs> cannabis, okay? Sure. Thanks, everybody. It's great to be with you. And,
3: you know, I've got a pin around here somewhere that says, you know, New York State Progressive Capital of the Nation. And that's how we, I, I think that button was printed by our, our governor at a uh, past uh, national convention. Uh, but New York does really pride itself on being uh, kind of on the cutting edge of, of progressive policy, but here we are on cannabis having just beaten Virginia by a couple of days here, uh, barely. Uh, so congratulations to Virginia. Um, and I think the question is, you know, kind of what what took so long in New York after a number of uh, false starts? Um, and, you know, kind of all goes back to Senator Liz Kruger, who introduced uh, a version of the MRTA in 2013, So New York has been considering legalization for a long time and kind of fits and starts. Uh, About three years ago, Governor Cuomo uh, announced his support for legalization. Um, But this is actually the third session in which uh, it was in the governor's budget uh, twice before it fell out of the governor's budget. Um, This time, we were finally able to pass legislation outside of the budget process to get New York over the finish line. Um, And there are a number of dynamics at play as there were this year as New York has kind of become the latest political soap opera, uh, in the country. Uh, but you know, the the grand irony of, of the last two years was that the main sticking point was an argument over revenue and where revenue would be spent, you know, and, and, and I say uh, ironic because there is no revenue if you don't legalize. So that was very frustrating. Um, at the same time, you know, there were other issues that, that, frankly, hadn't been figured out to the last second here uh, in terms of uh, driving while uh, impaired. Apparently, you know, there, there isn't a clear good standard apparently anywhere in the country over how to uh, determine impairment for the purpose of vehicle stops. And that was a huge problem for Republicans in our state and even Democrats in, you know, Long Island, and the suburbs and, and whatnot. And until uh, the 2020 cycle, when uh, Democrats uh, finally achieved a supermajority in the state Senate, we weren't sure we had the votes in the state Senate, even with the Democratic majority, because you had a number of uh, Democrats in swing districts with, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and and other groups being extremely concerned. So it kind of took a lot of attention to detail to finally figure out the social equity piece, which is hugely important in New York, as it is everywhere else, the Kind of law and order issues um, and the market structure, and you know, while you know, I think we're a bit embarrassed that it took us so long as a state to get it done. There is a great benefit to having seen so many states go through this, and you know where they succeeded and failed. And you know, a senator Kruger and assembly member people Stokes and the governor's office would tell you they you know studied and would say, "Oh, that's not working. We need to fix that. That's working. Let's that put in put in here and." Hopefully, because of that, we've right sized our tax structure and and uh, and our regulatory body, um, which similar to Virginia, there's a lot of unanswered questions. But so that New York will hopefully have a smooth uh, uh, implementation of what you know should eventually be a five to ten billion dollar a year market here in New York State. Well, Jamie, that, that was
0: very, oh, go ahead, Mark. very articulate, very informed, but you didn't. Tell us what we want to know. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> what, what, what happened up there yeah. with the Governor? Which way yeah. did that cut the politics of it? We'll come back right. to the content of it, which sure, is, sure, sure, is critically important. But but we can't bury the lead. This right. uh, this is all about Andrew right. Cuomo. So. Right. So, so look, you have you have this odd
3: couple. of This is a three way negotiation between three people that don't really believe that people should be smoking cannabis. Senator Kruger, Assemblymember People Stokes, and the governor are all personally, you know, do not want people to be smoking cannabis. Um, that's their personal opinion. However, they all understand that it is already a reality. They understand that you know black and brown people are being you know locked up and communities have been harmed for years. So they set about know coming to a solution. You know, the answer the, the real question here is, you know, the governor was obsessed with being able to control the revenues from the program. And the legislature wanted money to be earmarked. And what kind of happened on like the past two years where there was just a you know no resolution. This year, you had the governor saying, you know what? Let's give them what they want. Let's give them 40% for programs. Let's give them 40% for education. Um, You know, I will, let's just get this done. Let's have a win, a win for me, a win for you, a win for the state, a win for communities of color. And so the the political dynamic shifted um, for various reasons, including, um, you know, I think the governor uh,
2: needing a win. Yeah, that is so, Jamie, that part is what's fascinating to me. You nailed it. Obviously, the tawdry details of the scandal are so interesting, but the way it affected the political dynamics of the negotiation, you know, in Illinois, I don't know if our bill could have passed a few years earlier, given the tremendous power Speaker Madigan once held. And he's, you know, sort of an old school type of guy. This would not have been his type of effort. And then we had a new, uh, you know, self-funded, uh, independently wealthy governor who had a lot of his own political support. And so these these political dynamics among the three people who negotiated this were different than they had ever been, in addition to with where, uh, you know, kind of how the issue had evolved. And so that part is really well, fascinating. I,
0: I, part I was part of it, Patrick is what you and I talk about only every day in Washington. Which is everybody worries about where you're going to find 10, Dem- 10 Republicans in the Senate to get something passed. And you can worry about Republicans in Richmond or Republicans in Albany. But none of that matters until the Democrats agree. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Jamie, you were just talking about Democrats. Trying That's to right. On the same page. Well, that was funny.
3: Once the governor kind of said, you know what, give me a bill and I'll sign it. Then the, the, the Senate and the Assembly, which are all Democrats, realized, oh, wait, we need to get on the same page about impairment and all these other things. And so, you know, it's a complicated issue with lots of nooks
2: and crannies. But uh, we finally got across the finish line. Jamie, similar question to what we asked uh, Ashley on on the Commonwealth's process. I mean, this happened so fast and I remember this feeling in Illinois where our legislature came down at the last minute. This was a huge, huge Herculean effort. And then everyone, you kind of stop and you're like, okay, so now now what, how is this gonna work? Our real sticking point was the nature of the social equity program and how that was gonna work. Um, As you're looking ahead now, Um, And as we're getting questions from our clients and and interested parties about how this process is going to go in New York, what do you think are the big things that industries focus on that we should all be paying attention to as New York goes about the process now of of implementation? Sure. Well, it is going to be a
3: process, uh, a long one. You know, we have to appoint a cannabis control board, ramp up an office of cannabis management, and then do a really complicated rulemaking to answer a lot of the outstanding questions but you know the, with you know the expectation of uh, you know retail sales hopefully by the end of 2022. Um, so we don't have quite as much time as Virginia um, but but still a lot of unanswered questions but you know the, the, the outline of the program is clear. Um, you know there are restrictions on vertical integration um, except for limited vert- vertical integration for the existing, uh, medical organizations in the state, which was a smart way for the state to on one hand, you know, ensure social equity and a diverse array of license holders, but also ensure an adequate supply of product, uh, during the ramp up of, of the market, which has been, a you know, which was a problem in Massachusetts and other places. So, you know, um, the question of how many licenses will be issued is, is still unanswered, but the thought it, you know, the, the kind of, uh, I think, dream of the, of the sponsors is to have a very large number of kind of boutique retail dispensary operators with the idea of, you know, no one has an, a, a controlling interest in more than three retail dispensaries, including the, the medical organizations, which will be allowed to have uh, up to eight. Uh, medical dispensaries, up from four currently, and then they can co-locate, again, three, which is the magic number, adult use dispensaries. And then you can also have new adult use applicants, but again, they're limited to uh, an interest in three. So there are, in theory, to have hundreds of dispensaries across the state, if not over a 1,000, but to have a large number of smaller operators with a goal of 50% of those licensees being social equity applicants um, from communities of color. Those who are formerly uh, incarcerated, distressed farmers and military veterans. Um, But a lot of questions still, uh, uh, you know, to be answered through regulation.
0: So on on that point, Jamie, and and Ashley, you can please tell us the same for uh, Virginia. What happened in the bill on the uh, Criminal justice reform piece, expungement and restitution for, for people arrested, convicted, incarcerated. Was, was that a dimension of each of these bills?
1: Yeah. I mean, in Virginia, that was, you know, there was a separate bill for that, but also the overall legalization bill included that in there. One of the challenges that we're going to have in Virginia with that, which I'm sure exists with every state, is the computer system ability to go in and Mm. seal and expunge records. And so they have tried to speed that timeline up, but anticipating when exactly the date is that everybody would receive expungement is very difficult. And they anticipate it'll be a years-long process to get through everybody. But that was a definitely a very important piece of the Virginia legislation with decriminalization happening last year, they learned that uh, taking that off of everybody's, you know, records, taking the, the simple possession charge in terms of decrim when you came to background checks for employers has been really difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I think we had a little lesson learned there as we move forward with expungement, but that is a, a, A kind of a core piece of the Virginia legislation and something that tweaked, you know, created some controversy about at the very end was in legalizing, we're having to create some new crimes or the perception that we're creating new crimes. It's not really a new crime because you've never been able to smoke marijuana in public in Virginia, right? But um, now that you can possess marijuana, we do have it as a penalty in Virginia that you cannot consume it in public, right? Um, and, and the so- question
0: is, how much of the old crime do you keep? It, it's not a new crime. Yeah, it's how exactly. much of the old crime do you keep? That's it's- a really good point, Mark. Yeah, and Jamie, New York.
3: Yeah, so New York had already, you know, decriminalized. This bill goes a step further in terms of again automatic expungement. I think again, as Ashley said, it's going to take a while. I believe there's some process by which you can file to have your like expungement uh, expedited. Uh, but you can, you know, there'll also be automatic resentencing of individuals. Um, you know, the fight over car stops was, was a huge issue for us in the last second of what is probable cause to search. Um, and I think we ended in a place where, uh, the odor of marijuana is not sufficient probable cause for a search. And that was a huge sticking point, um, for communities of color who saw that as a way for police to just search a bunch of cars. uh, So that's actually
0: statutory in New York now?
3: I believe so. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what makes all of this, Patrick, so fascinating is that it's, of course, still today a federal crime. Right. You have Ashley and Jamie within their own borders trying to figure out how much of the old crime, if any, to keep— And meanwhile, at the federal level, it is it's still the old crime that hasn't changed. And that that's a good way to wrap what has been a tremendous discussion. Give us a a little sense, Patrick, of how everything that Jamie and Ashley just shared with us is going to play in Washington yeah, Mark, you nailed it, and
2: that that disconnect it was so evident to me this morning when I was inside a dispensary for one of our clients, an adult use dispensary that just opened in suburban Chicago. And I just kept thinking about that. This is you're looking around. This is a first class facility. You had all different types of people coming in. and and you could have been at any retail store for any type of product. And I just kept thinking about that disconnect that this is still, federally illegal and and what really kind of drove my thinking as I was driving away was as things become more normalized in communities and states, it is impossible uh, for this to go the other way and federal policymakers, will return home to their cities and states. They will see this become a fabric of the community. You know, the issues Jamie and Ashley both brought up about organized labor, about social equity, um, about how licenses are gonna be distributed. Those are like real, real issues. And we've seen our whole uh, host of problems here in Illinois, but the revenue when you think about the debate in New York, it actually was a fight worth having. We saw a billion dollars in Illinois in sales last year. And that is really what is going to continue to drive this forward for, for federal policymakers as well. But they have a lot. They, they have not fully politically come around to the idea that this is uh, worth doing. And part of it is, I think, a disconnect between wondering if it's really as popular. Some of it, I think, is truly a a concern about public safety and other issues, but Mark brought up the most important one, and and I'm going to turn it back to you on the federal side. The most interesting part of working on this is the coalitions that are formed politically. and As a uh, millennial with baby boomer parents, I am always fascinated by the baby boomer generation, and just these constant struggles about things. And and you see it in Democratic baby boomers in Congress that Mark and I talked to who just grew up in an era where this was not uh, an acceptable well, practice, one of whom is in the Oval Office. And you, and you just president. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I would just I from you, that to me continues to be the most fascinating thing at the federal level is we're trying to get people to understand that we need
0: to move forward on this. I think uh, legalization has won. The fight for legalization has won. The only question is how it's going to happen. Is it going to be 50 states before the federal government gets around to it? I don't think so. Is it going to be legalization this year? Maybe, but that's an uphill climb but the the die has been cast and a lot of it as you say patrick is generational and it it's just going to happen in time the question is is when whether it's it's sooner or later but that begs a a question i'll leave our audience with uh, to think about because when washington gets around to acting and it could be this year could be next year uh, or, or after. But when Washington gets around to acting, what becomes of these beautiful programs that Ashley and Jamie have built in their states? You in Illinois, we have medical here in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of figuring out still to be done, not nearly as simple as flipping a switch and saying, "Okay, go, everything's now legal everywhere. And and to be continued, we we look forward to many more conversations on this. I'll be surprised if Patrick and I don't discuss it another time today because that's the nature of our work. But, Jamie, thank you so much. Ashley, thank you so much. Great, great work for first timers. You wouldn't know it from listening to the two of you and we look forward to resuming our regular broadcast uh, next week so thanks to all you've been listening to the beltway briefing a podcast from cozen o'connor public strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released the beltway briefing podcast has been produced by hometown podcasts and audio Washington, D.C.